This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. This week we have a special edition of the podcast. I'm joined today by Andrew Marinus, whose new book, Singled Out, tells the story of the first openly gay baseball player in the major leagues. Glenn Burke was a rising star with the Los Angeles Dodgers in the mid-1970s, but his career would be sidetracked by homophobia by the end of the decade, just as he was entering his prime. Marinus is also the New York Times bestselling author of Games of Deception and Strong Inside. Andrew is a visiting author at Vanderbilt University Athletics and a contributor to ESPN's TheUndefeated.com. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Miles. It's fun to be speaking with somebody from Wisconsin and Door County in particular. I was born in Madison. I only lived there till I was four, but I remained a fan of the Brewers and the Packers. And my parents went on their honeymoon in Door County. So I've always, even though I've never been, I've always heard you know, great stories about it. So thanks for having me on. Oh, that's excellent. And we'll, we'll get back to some of your, uh, your, your Wisconsin sports fandom, uh, later on in the podcast. Cause <laughs> I do right. want to talk about that. You're, um, you're pretty close to the era of sports that I grew up with. And it's kind of interesting to talk about that in context of where Wisconsin sports has gone from since like the seventies and eighties, when it was kind of a, a weak era <laughs> to be kind. Right. But you also mentioned your father uh, honeymooning up here. And I think I had read that in one of his columns years ago, your father, David Mar- Marinus. And I, I thought I had read that once and it's been in the back of my head. So it's funny you mentioned that because like, all right, it's confirmed. <laughs> yeah, this I think one of the stories I've heard, you know, my parents were 20 <laughs> when they were married. And so they drove up from Madison and my dad's notorious <laughs> for getting speeding tickets. And he got one <laughs> driving to Door County on their honeymoon. And the officer made him get out of the car and, and rice fell out of his suit uh, <laughs> sure? he used to throw rice on the new bride and groom and so he got out of the <laughs> ticket <laughs> because of the rice the guy felt sorry for him so <laughs> weddings were probably a lot cheaper back when we were doing things like throwing rice on each other instead of the elaborate things we do today <laughs> yeah well exactly. you know I, I wanted to have you on the podcast when i heard that your new book singled out was coming out about uh glenn burke as i said in the intro the the first openly gay major league baseball player and you know, it's interesting as you look through your the three books you've written, you've picked three pretty tough subjects all about marginalized people or groups, the first black basketball player in the SEC, Jewish athletes competing in the Olympics in Nazi Germany, the actual the first U.S. Olympic basketball team, in fact. And then now you're talking about the first openly gay baseball player. I'm curious what draws you to these subjects? How do you pick them and, and what moves you about them enough to spend your time? Because when you write a book, you're diving all in. So... Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, you sure are. I've I've learned that the hard way. My first book took me eight <laughs> years to write, so that was you know that does become an obsession. Well, for me, you know, I'm a big sports fan. Period. You know, for the sport itself, you know, like I live and die with the <laughs> Brewers and the Packers. But as an author, I'm more interested in sports, really, just as a vehicle to tell interesting stories about history and social justice. So just as you mentioned that story of Perry Wallace, which is strong inside, is really, you know, he's a basketball player, but it's, it's more about what it was like to be a black teenager in Nashville in the civil rights era and to be thrust into this role as a pioneer in the SEC in the late 60s, traveling to Ole Miss and University of Alabama and all these places where important civil rights milestones or battles had occurred, you know, and now all of a sudden he's there as a, as a black basketball player. And 
what that experience can teach us about race and sports today. You know, the second one mm -hmm. about uh, the rise of fascism in Nazi Germany told through basketball, I thought would be an interesting story to tell in the context of what we see happening just in politics in this country and around the world right now. And then this story with Glenn Burke also, you know, I think that the idea of LGBTQ athletes is something that's being more talked about now, or in certain states, you have a lot of legislation against, say, transgender athletes, you know, so it's a, a topic that is certainly very relevant right now. Uh, and to look at sort of the roots of it, at least in terms of baseball, is what attracted me to that story. So it's really the sports and the social justice aspect. The other thing that I do with my books is they're really considered young adult books for mm -hmm. teenagers. And so a lot of my, in non-COVID times, I'm traveling to schools, you know, or conferences for school librarians, visiting high schools, middle schools. I've come up to Wisconsin several times to speak, especially in the Milwaukee area at schools. And I think that using sports to tell these stories about human nature or discrimination, politics is an interesting and to me, I think effective way to do it because I feel like sports are accessible to just about anybody, especially to a teenager. It's it's not really intimidating to see a basketball player on the cover of a book or a baseball player. And so maybe you'll pick up that book and then get into something that's uh, you know more important than just the scores and statistics of an athlete. Absolutely. And, and I've seen you talk about this a little bit before as well. And I was definitely that guy, that kid who got into any subject through sports in grade school and middle school and you know, I wasn't going to pick up a book about critical race theory or anything like that as a, <laughs> as a young child, but I was going to pick up a book about Jackie Robinson or right. um, Roberto Clemente. And those are all guys from before my time, but I was just drawn to those historical subjects. And that's how you, you learn a little bit, bit about a subject that you might not otherwise be interested in or drawn to at all as a young kid. I think it's really interesting that you have done these young adult books and these young adult adaptations of your books, I think is what you did with the with your first book. Is that correct? That's the first one. That's right. Yeah. The first one I wrote originally as an adult book. And then I met a woman in here in Nashville who writes historical fiction for teens. And she suggested that I consider this, you know, adaptation. It's something I'd never thought of before. And I'm really grateful that she had that suggestion. It feels meaningful to go into a school and share a story and see certain kids or have experience of teachers or librarians coming up and say, you know, this kid, maybe he's on the football team or they play a lot of video games, but they really don't spend much time in the library. You know, but they read this book and they liked it and they wanted to know if there are any more like it. That makes you feel good as an author. And um, that's been rewarding for me because I'm like, you know, I was that kid. What I read as a middle schooler was what's brewing in Packer Report, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yep. mailed to me in uh, suburban D.C. <laughs> because my grandfather in Milwaukee <laughs> wanted to make sure that I stuck with the teams, you know, the family teams. And so I'm the kid that would have walked in the library and seen a cool picture of a basketball player on the cover and picked it up. The other thing is that there's a lot of kids that aren't reading, period, whether right. the book is quote-unquote meaningful or not. And so half the battle is just getting kids interested in reading, and I think sports is a way to do that. Yeah, I used to, they used to have the, I don't, I don't know if they still have this, but the, the reading is fundamental riff books that would come yeah. to your school. And, you know, I'd go up when they'd bring that bus around. I walked out of there with three sports bios every single year. <laughs> I got to choose my three free, or I think it was like three books for $9 or something. And, right. and I loved it. But it, those were books I devoured. You know, they didn't sit in a shelf. I might have read them multiple times. And I think like Stephen King says, like you learn to write by reading a lot and it, yeah. it teaches you how to write too. So you're not just getting the enjoyment and learning how to read, but you're potentially becoming a better writer just through the Absolutely. process. So whatever makes you do that, I think you mentioned before too, growing up like I did, reading the backs of baseball cards and football cards. 
Yes, that's what uh, my parents tell me is how I learned how to read was reading the back of baseball cards. <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying that every sports biography is like good literature <laughs> for, for kids. You know, a lot of times they're not. But for a certain age, it doesn't even matter. You know, I'm happy when I see my son sitting on the couch reading. I don't care what it is. Mm -hmm. As long as he's developing that habit of reading. I have a chip on my shoulder when people say that sports books are somehow less than or they're not real books. I think that they can be just as interesting and valuable as any other genre of books if they're well done. And so the research that I do for my books, whether they're considered young adult or adult, is essentially the same. You know, they're not kids books because they're not serious. You know, I'm doing lots of research, interviews, traveling to archives, doing all the research I would do for an adult book, just writing it for that younger audience. And that is something I think has been missing. If you look at sports books in the past, they were typically more about, you know, great seasons or maybe some challenges the athlete had growing up, but they didn't really tackle social issues per se. And so that's the extra bit that I'm trying to add to my book. Yeah. And your books are, like you said, they're, they're covering really complicated topics for, you know, a middle school age kid to um, wrap his head around or her head around. How do you do that as a writer? Like, what do you, you know, I, I remember when I first started coaching high school basketball and when I first started, I was doing middle school and I realized I would say stuff like, all right, we're going to, you want to catch it at the elbow, pump fake and make a move to the hoop. And then you realize they have no idea what the elbow is. They have no idea what I'm talking <laughs> right. about except like the elbow on their body. So I had to bring myself back down several levels of knowledge and, and find out, meet the kids where they were at. So how do you do that as a writer? How do you take your knowledge and, and meet them at the level that they can comprehend, but also that's right for that maturity level. Yeah, it's not the easiest thing, but on the other hand, you know, and, and one thing I'm trying to do with my books also, and you've read them, is write them in a way that an adult wouldn't feel like they're stepping down too far when right. they're reading it either. So I would love for these books to be considered for anybody, and I think that's the way a lot of young adult fiction is. There's probably just as many or more adults reading YA fiction as actual teenagers, and so why not nonfiction? Really, the biggest difference is the length of the books is maybe two-thirds the length of a typical adult book. I like to include a lot of photos also. I think teens and adults appreciate pictures in a book. Mm -hmm. Teens, especially when they see, oh, that page is a whole photo or it's half a page is a picture. I don't even have to read that whole page. You know, <laughs> It's just psychologically yeah. important to keep them moving through Certainly. the book. And in general, my writing style, I don't try to impress anybody with multisyllabic <laughs> words or anything. I just want to tell a story. And if you sort of take the approach that you might tell a story to your mom or your dad or your brother or sister or grandmother in essentially the same way, telling a clear story. For me, you know, doing the good research so that I can paint colorful scenes and characters that people can envision, then I don't think there's that much difference in the writing style, whether it's for a teen or an adult. Like you said, there are certain times where certain phrases or historical events or people that you would expect an adult, you know, is familiar with, it might require just a almost a parenthetical definition or description mm -hmm. of this scene or this person. And you're mindful of that. But the one thing you don't do is dumb down the story. And I, I was learning that, you know, as I was adapting my first book, and I was really happy when my editor told me that, said, you know, respect these teen readers, you know, they can, they can handle any subject. Um, and there might be certain times where you do have to provide that little uh, historical backstory to them. But that's it. I mean, the idea that you couldn't talk about racism or you couldn't talk about LGBTQ subjects with teens is, is not even really discussed at all in the publishing business. Yes, I mean, teenagers are 
living that themselves. So certainly they can read about it. Sure. And even if you don't spell it out for them, it's not a bad thing for, for a kid to be reading a book and have to turn to their brother or their older sister or their mom or dad and have to ask them, hey, what does this mean? What, what yeah. are they getting at here? Or in the case of if you're reading about Glenn Burke, you're saying, why did people treat him differently because he was a gay player? You know, that's a mm -hmm. good conversation for families to be having. Absolutely. Um, those are important conversations. One thing I try to do also is have a good amount of back matter in the books also, whether that's a glossary or timelines or um, in the new book, Singled Out, I have sort of a compilation of other interesting black LGBTQ figures that students might want to do research on on their own. Uh, you know, they've learned about Glenn Burke. Well, who else is worthy of a story that's mm -hmm. not talked about too much? So trying to provoke those discussions, those questions. Absolutely. Yeah, there's some great information at the back of the book that just references different stories in a little more detail about some of the things you mentioned in there. You know, you mentioned uh, that, that the books are a little shorter, which is great for younger readers. That's also good for older readers. And the large print is also good for this 42-year-old who now has to wear reading glasses. So <laughs> yeah, I do appreciate that. I'm a reading that. glasses guy now myself. <laughs> but they are. I, I should, just to be clear, like these are books that an adult's going to learn from. Like I, I've read a ton of sports books. I knew nothing about the first U.S. Olympic basketball team. And just kind of learning how, how far the game has come and how just uh, random it was to come up with who would actually go represent the U.S. in the Olympics in that book <laughs> is pretty fascinating. And just like a couple of townie teams, sort of, if, if that's fair. And then they merged the two teams together. The top two teams had to pick like half their team to go. And you put these two teams together randomly. I mean, there's just so much great history there. I really enjoyed doing that book because I didn't know any of that history either. And I consider myself a pretty big basketball fan. But you're right, 1936 was the first year that there was Olympic basketball. Fog Allen, the legendary Kansas coach, was the one who really had pushed for basketball to be included in the Olympics. And James Naismith, the inventor of the game, was still alive. And Naismith traveled to Germany to see his invention played in the Olympics. Uh, they had a national tournament open to the top white amateur teams uh, in the country at that time. And they said whichever two teams make it to the championship game at Madison Square Garden would be combined to create the first U.S. Olympic team. And, and one of those two teams came from McPherson, Kansas, which, you know, I went out to McPherson as I was researching the book, a tiny town in the middle of Kansas. There was an oil company there that sponsored a basketball team as a way to promote <laughs> its gasoline. And they had a guy named Joe Fortenberry on their team who's considered the first player ever to dunk a basketball. He did it at one of the games at Madison Square Garden. Hmm. And then the other half of the team came from Los Angeles, from Hollywood, from uh, Universal Pictures, which sponsored a team as well as a way to promote their movies. And this was the first dream team players from those two <laughs> teams combined. There was no NBA. College basketball was pretty strong, but it wasn't what it is today. Um, and actually, the best college team, which could have participated in that qualifying tournament, was from Long Island University. And they mm. took a vote as a team uh, and decided to boycott even the U.S. qualifying tournament as a way to protest Hitler. Mm. So, you know, when people talk about sports and politics and whether they should mix or whether um, you can look back to 1936 and see that there were athletes in college basketball boycotting a qualifying tournament because of politics. It's certainly nothing new. And um, maybe athletes have larger platforms now and more people that they can speak directly to, but it was even happening, you know, close to a hundred years ago. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the most disingenuous arguments that you could make in the modern era is the whole, like, we got to keep sports or politics out of sports. <laughs> I mean, it's right. been um, remarkably intertwined forever. Absolutely. Especially in the Olympics. And, you know, yeah. you've got Hitler using the Olympics as purely a political propaganda event. <laughs> the whole reason that 
he wanted to host those Olympics in the first place. Well, and even today with our, could be a whole other podcast, but you know, our, our United States military uses sports as a prop. Some would oh, call sure. it propaganda all the time. Yeah, with the flyovers and the flags on the field, which most people don't know are paid for. <laughs> you know, Correct, it's a yeah. spontaneous uh, display of patriotism. It's, it, they're paid for. Yeah, the NFL isn't doing that out of the kindness of their heart. The NFL doesn't right. do anything out of the kindness of their heart. <laughs> the last question I had for you on the kind of the young adult author train of thought is, did you was there an author that connected to you or a particular book that connected you as a young adult when you were coming up and reading? Oh, wow, that's a good question. You know, I, I think that I'm old enough that I didn't really feel like there was a young adult genre when I was growing <laughs> up. You know, I mean, there were children's books and then there were books, <laughs> kind of how I thought of it. For me, it wasn't necessarily um, a single book. I think that I was really lucky to grow up with a journalist in my family. So, mm -hmm. And we lived in D.C. most of my childhood, so I was reading the Washington Post before school every day, usually just a sports section, but still a great sports section, sure. or my, my dad's own articles. And so to me, to have that good writing as part of my daily routine, I think it was really important. I'm not somebody that considered myself like a good English student. I was intimidated by English classes. You know, I took as little English as I could even in college, but I've always loved writing. And I sort of feel like it came about just almost through osmosis or not really thinking about it. But like you said earlier, just doing the reading. And we always did read a lot in our family, but a lot of it was newspapers or, or magazines. First book that I read that was like a narrative nonfiction of the style that I like to write that really stood out to me was called Son of the Morning Star, and it was by Evan S. Connell about the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And uh, I read it in high school, and I was just amazed that someone could write in a style where it's like you could picture yourself there. You know, how did they know mm -hmm. what the horse looked like, or how many steps this guy took, you know, or what it felt like? And a great example to me of, of research really paying off in a, in a colorful story. That's probably the one that had the biggest impact. It's funny, though, I, I wrote a paper about it for school. And got a terrible grade, like probably the lowest grade I ever made in high school <laughs> or college, because I had misinterpreted the assignment. We were supposed to do more of a research paper, and I did essentially a book report. <laughs> <laughs> and so it didn't turn out in a, to help me out in my grades, but it did leave a lasting impact. So let's talk a little bit about your, your latest book, Singled Out, about Glenn Burke. How did you end up on the Glenn Burke subject? Yeah, it was really just a, a conversation with my agent. His name's Alex Shane. After I had finished writing Games of Deception, but before it was published, I was ready to get started on another book. And we were just talking about um, what we've talked about, you know, the types of books that I'm interested in writing, sports with a bigger message behind it. And he mentioned that there had never been a biography of Glenn Burke. And as soon as he said it, I was like, that's it. <laughs> you know, it'd be a great story. I remember having his 1978 Dodger Tops baseball card when I was growing up. I knew the top line trivia about him, you know, that he was considered the first openly gay player and that he had invented the high five, but I knew nothing uh, more, but that was enough. And the fact that I could tell his story in the context of the 1970s gay rights movement, I felt like would be plenty for an interesting book. And so settled on it in the middle of that conversation with Alec. You mentioned him coming up in the 1970s, kind of a remarkable confluence of events of the gay pride movement, gaining steam. You know, he grew up in Oakland, which is a stone's throw from um, San Francisco, kind of the center of gay culture at the time. Basically, Harvey Milk is um, mm -hmm. rising in politics in San Francisco at the same time. And then, sadly, it becomes connected to the tragedy of the AIDS epidemic. 
it's, it's just interesting. This guy who is in many ways forgotten, and thankfully you're kind of putting his story back in the forefront. And so hopefully it's not as forgotten moving forward, but um, that he is connected to so much of that era. In my books, I want to connect the characters to the context of the place and the times that they exist in. But the danger would be if there really wasn't much of a connection in their own lives. You know, like, yes, these things are happening at the same time, but it's a stretch to say that they influenced, you know, one way or the other. With Glenn, that was not a concern at all. I mean, as you said, he's growing up in the Bay Area. He's living in the Castro in the off-season um, as he's coming up as a minor league player and as a major league player. I walked by his house that he lived in, and it was literally around the corner from Harvey Milk's camera shop. Hmm. When he's in spring training in uh, Vero Beach, Dodger Town, Anita Bryant is leading an anti-gay rights campaign in Florida at the same time. And... Um, Milk's assassinated at the same time that Glenn is sort of being run out of baseball. So there were so many things happening in pop culture or politics at the same time and in the same places as Glenn. And so it made it fun to sort of weave those stories together in this book. Glenn was, Glenn Burke was not, it's not like he had a coming out moment until after he finished his playing days, but the way you write it, his teammates, if not all of them, most of them appeared to already know he was gay, correct? That's right. Yeah, I would say for the sake of a book cover or a quick description, you say he's the first openly gay Major League Baseball player. He didn't really come out to the world until after he was out of baseball. But it was an open secret while he was in the game. Even in the minor leagues, players were catching on with the Dodgers, guys like Dusty Baker, Davey Lopes. They knew uh, with the Oakland A's. I interviewed Mike Norris. He said that they all knew. Glenn was run out of baseball because of who he was also, which is another reason why I think you can say he was openly gay if it cost him his career. It wasn't a complete secret. Yeah. So Tommy Lasorda, Al Campanis, traded Glenn after he refused to go along with essentially a bribing uh, offer. They, they offered him $75,000 to get married during the offseason between the 77 and 78 seasons, and Glenn said to a woman, and when Campanis said yes, said he wasn't going to go through with that, and, and he was traded. He was with the Oakland A's. Billy Martin becomes the manager who says he's not going to let Glenn, quote-unquote, contaminate his team and calls him, you know, F-word in, in front of the other players and sends him down to the minor leagues, and Glenn knows he's not going to get a shot. And so he ends up quitting baseball as a triple-A player, but I think it's unfair to say he quit when he had those two things happen to him. You know, he was, he was being driven from the game. And yeah, he's really entering what should be the prime years of a baseball player's career, right? I think he's only 26 or 27 at that point. Right, yeah, he wasn't over the hill by any means. He was considered a prospect. As he's working his way up through the Dodger system, uh, he, he was probably their top outfield prospect in the minor leagues. Uh, Junior Gilliam, longtime Dodger coach, said he had the potential to be the next Willie Mays. As a rookie in 77, he started two games in the NLCS against the Phillies. He started game one of the World Series uh, at Yankee Stadium, and then he's traded the next year, and then out of baseball entirely two years after that. So he didn't really get his shot. He hit over 300 five times uh, as a minor leaguer, set stolen base records at a few different levels of the minor leagues. So he was incredibly talented. He was a phenomenal athlete. You may remember Rupert Jones, outfielder who also went to Berkeley High, where Glenn did. <laughs> when Glenn was in high school, senior year, his basketball team, with Glenn as the star, went undefeated and won the Northern California Championship. And Rupert said that Glenn was the best athlete he's ever seen, period. Baseball, basketball, Rupert had a long major league career, and he thought Glenn was the best pure athlete he's ever seen. And so, you know, in that way, Glenn was, um, just through his own presence, was disputing a lot of stereotypes 
about what a gay man was supposed to be in the, in the 1970s. No one, no straight person would have, you know, guessed that the most athletic person on their basketball team or on their baseball team, or even that a gay player at all would be on these teams, you know, um, mm-hmm. they would thought that that was unthinkable at the time. And yet Glenn was, you know, he had these 17 inch biceps. He was incredibly strong and fast. And, you know, just in his presence was not what people thought he could or should be. So it seems management obviously wasn't happy about it, but how did his teammates accept him at that time? He was accepted fairly well. He had a good friend from the Bay Area named Marvin Webb, who was, uh, you know, their relationship went back to amateur baseball days. And Marvin was probably the first person to pick up on Glenn's sexuality and didn't bother Marvin. He still loved Glenn. When Glenn arrives in the Dodger clubhouse, and this is, remember, such a, a veteran, talented team, Steve Garvey, Davey Lopes, Dusty Baker, Ron Say, Bill Russell, Reggie Smith, Tommy John, Don Sutton. And Glenn's the most popular player in the clubhouse from the moment he arrives as a fourth outfielder, a rookie. He's the one that they all said was the sort of the life of the clubhouse with his music and his jokes and imitating Tommy Lasorda, creating a bit of a a looser environment on a team that had some internal (laughs) turmoil and tensions and a lot of pressure on them to succeed in the postseason. They loved Glenn and they knew, you know, gradually all knew that Glenn was gay. And when he was traded, to the A's, the uh, newspaper writers who didn't know that Glenn was gay, but they knew how popular he was, they wrote in the next day's papers about how they saw players crying at their lockers when Glenn was traded. And you wouldn't imagine that when a rookie fourth outfielder is traded that Steve Garvey and Don Sutton would be crying about it. But that just shows what a powerful presence that he had in the clubhouse, how beloved he was. So what was it that management was maybe so out of touch with their clubhouse at the time? I know you you mentioned there's some allusions to maybe Tommy Lasorda and his son, um, Mm -hmm. and maybe Tommy's denial of his son's sexuality. Yeah, so I think that there is that tangible, practical, in some ways, issue at hand. So Tommy Lasorda Jr. was gay, and uh, Lasorda Sr., you know, maintained a relationship with him. He didn't disown his son like you saw happen in a lot of families back then, but he also would never publicly acknowledge that his son was gay. When when his son died of AIDS, he wouldn't acknowledge that that was the cause of death either. And so there are reports that he wasn't happy that the fact that one of his players, Glenn Burke, was friends with his son and that he wanted him out of that environment. The other thing, though, I think that the bigger reason was the Dodgers were a franchise that had public image of sort of being this clean-cut, all-American type of team. Steve Garvey sort of representing that outwardly, even though Garvey was not liked within the Dodger clubhouse and his teammates thought he was a bit of a phony and and they were probably right about that in many ways. And I think that they just, these, you know, older executives thought that if it was known that there was a gay player on the team, that that would not be something that their fans or sponsors, advertisers uh, would like, and that it would be a black mark against them from a PR standpoint and didn't Mm -hmm. want Glenn around for that reason. There was a letter sent to every major league baseball team in 1974 by the advocate, you know, the LGBT newspaper and, asking to do interviews about the um, possibility that there might be gay players within their franchise and sent this to every team. And the Minnesota Twins PR executive wrote back just blasting the paper for even suggesting that there could be uh, a gay player. And they said in in this area of quote unquote, uh, total and complete manhood, you know, and so it was seen as unfathomable. It was seen as something that would turn people off. And so if it was going to come out that Glenn was gay, the Dodgers organization didn't want anything to do with that. Did you talk to any players or or management officials in today's game and get any indication of how a player would be accepted today? Yeah, well, you know, one person I talked to a lot was Dusty Baker, who was 
Glenn's teammate with the Dodgers, the Astros manager now. He feels like, you know, baseball still has its issues. There would be some players that would be cool with it, others that wouldn't, but that by and large, he thought that a gay player would be supported. I talked to Tony Kemp, uh, who now plays for the Oakland A's, and he thought that there would be support as well. I talked to Tim Corbin, who's the coach here at Vanderbilt, where I work in Nashville. You know, they've won the national championship twice in the last seven years, and he said that he would, quote-unquote, celebrate a gay player on his team. But I also talked to Billy Bean, who was the second gay player to come out after Glenn, who now works for Major League Baseball, and he's not quite so sure. You know, he said that one reason, you know, he says, of course, there are gay players in the game right now. We just don't know who they are. And the reason that they've chosen not to come out, he said, is this sort of the short window they have as a professional athlete, a short period of time to make a significant amount of money and all the pressures that any major league baseball player has, all the things that could potentially derail their career. They have to just ask themselves, is, is it worth it? Not knowing what your, how your teammates will react, how your management of the team will react, how the fans will react, the media, social media, you put all that pressure on yourself. How is that going to help you succeed as a baseball player? Even if you know that it would be an important message to send to the world and especially to young gay players, it, it just might not be worth it. I had one minor league player who's a closeted gay player read the book and reach out to me saying that Glenn's story is sort of pushing him one step closer to wanting to come out. Mm. He wanted to be sure that he got off to a good start this year. You know, he feels like it would be a easier thing to do if he had already established himself on his team, um, was respected by his teammates, and wasn't seen as just looking for publicity when he wasn't even a good player, that kind mm -hmm. of attitude. And so he, he, he might do it later this year, but he, he wants to get off to a good start. Yeah, you can see there'd be a lot of pressures on a, a young player in any sport like that, either to not seem like you're trying to make yourself like some sort of celebrity just by coming out, you know, because I'm sure there would be some backlash that way. And then mm -hmm. also to make sure you're established before you come out so they can't just cut you or right. people think they're keeping you just because you came out. You know, there's, there's just gotta be so many different pressures on top of so many of the pressures that you wrote about with, with Glenn Burke that must've affected him day in and day out. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the aftermath of his career. It's, it's not a happy story, the end of his life. No, it's not. So briefly it is, you know, he's run out of baseball, but he finds some happiness in the Castro where he can just be himself and surrounded by people that, that respect him and admire him and look up to him. But then he's hit by a car and loses his identity even as a softball player. After Major League Baseball, he's a star on the gay softball circuit in San Francisco. The World Series starting center fielder is now playing softball, you know. And But even after he's hit by the car, he can't even really be that type of athlete anymore. Also, you have the arrival of HIV AIDS in San Francisco uh, and a lot of Glenn's teammates start to get sick and are dying. Glenn eventually himself passes of AIDS, but he also, and I think this is a cautionary tale for all athletes, he had really seen himself first and foremost as an athlete. That's where his whole identity was. He was run out of the game before he was ready to, so also he hadn't really been giving much thought to a career outside of sports yet. So all of a sudden, he's just his best talent. He's not able to use it, you know, and that's not his fault. That's the rest of society's fault. They're homophobia. But he has a hard time adjusting to life outside of sports, really thinking about what he wants to do. It's a little bit of a blow to his ego to take sort of a more menial job and be recognized. Hey, didn't you just play for the Dodgers last year? And now you're like the, <laughs> working the register at the grocery store or something. You know, he, he didn't want to do that. And so he was really kind of boxed in and never found his way out and experienced homelessness. So not too long after starting the World Series, he's living on the streets of San Francisco, uh, destitute. And then 
also dying of AIDS. So it's not a happy ending to Glenn's story, unless you think about the last weeks of his life where he's rediscovered by the national media who want to do stories about what became of this first gay player. And they show up at his sister Lutha's house where Glenn is living his last weeks. And he has a chance to tell his story and to talk about what he hopes will come of it. And he says that he hopes that you know, as difficult as his experience was, that it will make it easier for young players, gay players in the future. And that's sort of his wish. It's sad in one respect that you haven't really seen that door. Tons of guys walk through it. Um, but again, I wouldn't say that's their fault. It's the rest of our fault for mm-hmm. not being uh, strong enough allies that people would consider it safe and comfortable to do so. I'm excited when I got that call from the minor league player who said that learning Glenn's story was inspiring to him. And so hopefully we'll see it happen. You've seen a lot more out lesbian athletes in sports like soccer and basketball. And mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, it's just been harder uh, to crack on the on the men's sports side. But, you know, you're tempted to say things are changing. On the other hand, you know, I live in Tennessee where there's been an incredible, they call it the slate of hate, you know, in the state legislature here. So many anti-LGBTQ laws passed in the legislature. It's just like every other aspect of our society right now, so polarized. And on one mm-hmm. hand, I think if a gay major leaguer were to come out, they'd probably have the best-selling jersey in Major League Baseball, you know, <laughs> and be the most talked about and, and popular player in some ways. On the other hand, you could just imagine what they'd deal with on social media and from some fans yeah. uh, at games. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's a great story, and it's one I didn't know much about even as an avid sports fan. So I think readers, any level of sports fan, is going to learn a lot by grabbing the book. It's called Singled Out. Um, it's the story of Glenn Burke. Before I let you go, Andrew, I want to talk about a kind of shared experience that we have of growing up as a Wisconsin sports fan in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Mine was mostly 80s. The Molitor Yount Gantner Brewers. Is that kind of like your touchstone <laughs> yes, thank baseball you. memory? Like that's, that's what got you into baseball? Absolutely. We can talk about this for the next seven hours if you want to. (laughs) Well, I contend that like if the, especially if like the 82 Harvey Wallbanger Brewers, if they just had the jersey that said Boston Red Sox, there'd probably be like nine documentaries written about or filmed about them, right? (laughs) Right. Exactly. For the Yankees, I know, I think that if you write a Yankee book, it's going to get published or it's going to be a documentary. But what a fun team. For me, it was really interesting because we had moved when I was four, which would have been 1974. But the Brewers were always sort of my connection back to where I was told I was from, you know. Uh, my grandparents, both sets, lived in Madison. Then one retired, not in Florida, but in Milwaukee. <laughs> and so we would go back to Wisconsin every summer to see games. But I was living in the D.C. area. And you remember in 82, the Orioles were the other team that the Brewers were fighting with for the playoff spot. You know, it came down to that last four games of the season at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. The Brewers had a three-game lead going into that series, lost the first three games. We were at all three of those games. I was 12 years old, just <laughs> dying, watching the Brewers lose those three games. And we didn't have tickets on Sunday. So I remember watching on a black-and-white TV on our screen in porch when Ben Ogilvy made that great sliding catch in the left field corner, and Robin Yount hit his home runs, Sutton pitched a great game. That was probably the happiest day of my life until a week or two later when Cecil Cooper got the hit that essentially won that game against the Angels. That was the first time I <laughs> cried of happiness. At my middle school in Maryland, I spent all day drawing the Brewers logo, you know, which was kind of a new, what was it, maybe three years old at that time, uh, the, the M&B logo. logo. Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, the best logo. And you can get me started on the, the new tweaks to it, which I'm not a fan <laughs> of, <laughs> of the new ball and glove logo. I was also lucky to have a pen pal named Ben Barkin, who was a PR guy in Milwaukee, who did the started the circus oh, sure. parade in I Milwaukee. I used to go to that as a kid. He was a minority owner of the Brewers. And like a good PR guy, he was trying to butter up me because my grandfather was the editor of the Capital Times <laughs> in Madison. So this PR guy is trying to ingratiate himself with the grandson of the editor. I didn't get that part <laughs> at the time, but I got it that he was sending me media guides and autographed baseballs, and I would send him letters before each season with the predicted batting order and statistics for all the players. And, you know, like everybody was going to hit 350 with 50 homers and 150 RBI. And one year he shared my letter with Harry Dalton, the old general manager of the Brewers, and I got a letter back from Harry Dalton. And so I've got the, that letter framed on my wall at home and some of the letters from Ben Barkin and it just was pretty magical being separated from Wisconsin, but having that connection to the Brewers. Silly me, like as a kid, just the fact that like Andrew has R-E-W and Brewers has R-E-W. <laughs> like, I thought that was a connection or I was born in February 1970, which was the time that the Brewers were created. <laughs> you know, like we were both born at the same time. I was obsessed. And my goal right now as a parent of a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old is to <laughs> brainwash them down here in Nashville to be Brewers fans too. So they're big Daniel Vogelback fans and my son was excited they got Adamus the other day. So I think I'm succeeding <laughs> in in brainwashing these kids. We'll be up there in July for a game against the Reds and can't wait to get to the stadium. You grew up in a great era to fall in love with that team. I mean, I think of the fact that like the first ten years that I followed sports the Brewers had Yount, Molitor, Gantner. Actually, probably the first 12 years that I followed, you always had those guys. So you always had somebody that you had a connection to that like went as long as you knew baseball, in my case. I was so distraught when Paul Molitor signed with the Blue Jays. I just didn't think it was even possible that he would leave. And then I was so ticked off at the <laughs> yeah. Brewers for putting money into Franklin Stubbs and not Paul Molitor, which uh, I was correct about. <laughs> I could have been a GM. You were correct about there was a long dry spell there. And that just spelled the end. Other than the 92 Pat Listash uh, Brewers, that was kind of the end of the, the run for quite a while. <laughs> I agree. I, in 1998, I worked for the Tampa Bay Rays, their media relations manager, and the Twins came to play the Rays. And Molitor, I can't remember if he was a, he must have been a coach that year for the Twins. He got a FedEx delivered to the stadium, and it was sent to me, like Paul Molitor, care of Andrew Marinus. And I was just like, <laughs> made a photocopy just of that label. <laughs> I thought that was cool. But the, the downer for me was, I think it was that same year where the, when the Brewers were switched leagues and changed their colors, oh, the yeah. blue and green. You know, I, I hated that. And they had that stupid logo. I've adjusted to the National League now, and I'm glad they've gone back to it. I'm not talking about the M logo they had recently, but, you know, that interlocking MB and the green and blue. I, I hated that. And I, I felt like I lost a part of my identity when <laughs> they changed leagues and changed well, colors. they were just wandering in the wilderness for about 10 years there that was just terrible you know like everything was we'll find some gimmick to make people come to the ballpark and and like us again we'll switch leagues we'll change the uniform again we'll change it again we'll change it again <laughs> right and then the new right. ballpark hey one game i was at during that era it might have been a little after that era actually but speaking of gimmicks it wasn't an intentional gimmick but i was at the sausage incident <laughs> game when Randall Simon, you know, knocked over one of the sausages and was arrested <laughs> for it. I was, I was at great. that game. Yeah, it's just like the ice bowl. I was at the sausage game. Right, right. Yeah, I was at the sausage game. 
Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been fun talking a little old school brewers and obviously a lot about your books. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.